Excellent. I'm, I'm, are you up for being involved this morning? Good. Good. I'm not, I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced there's a wholehearted response there. So, uh, but, but you are, aren't you? Yeah, you're not going to leave me hanging out here, are you, on, on my own? Good. Excellent. So I have, I have the uh, task of uh, uh, doing the um, last eight chapters of the book of Acts this morning. So I am covering Acts chapter 21 through to Acts chapter 28. You all excited? <laughs> You're even less convinced than you were at the start of, the, the start of what I just said. Brilliant. Well, I am actually. As it happens, I will be covering Acts chapter 21 through to Acts chapter 28. And we're going to be looking at Paul's journey um, from Jerusalem to Rome. And in particular, I want to look at the whole area. I mean, I could have picked a whole number of different things from his journey. But I want to pick particularly, look at the whole area of suffering with hope. I want to look at this whole subject of suffering um, with hope. But before I dive into that, I just want to do a, a bit of a plug for baptisms next week. If you are here this morning, or if, if someone who is part of this church, but is not able to be here today and you know them, and they're a Christian, they have clearly given their lives to Jesus. They've said, not only Lord Jesus are you my saviour, but you are the Lord of my life as well. The first step, really, in discipleship is to be baptised in water, to be immersed. It's a physical demonstration of an inner reality, that spiritual reality that has already taken place. And I just want to encourage you, go for it. Go for it next week. Make that decision even now as I am speaking, I am going to get baptised. I'm not going to let fear, I'm not going to let anxiety hold me back. I mean, it can be a bit, you know, big thing, can't it, being baptised in front of 300 people. All those kids crowding in around the edge or wanting to join you in there, they won't, but they want to. But it's actually in the end between you and God saying, no, I'm following you, Jesus. And if you've said it, I'm going to do it. I'm going to lay aside my fears and anxieties. I'm going to get baptised next week. And I just want to encourage you to do that, to make that decision. Go to the information desk at the end of the meeting um, and sign up and get it done. Brilliant. Let me pray. I'm not used to a cable. You can, uh, by the end of it, I reckon I'd be completely wrapped up, my feet all caught like that. I'd probably be lying on the floor and I've tripped up or something. But uh, anyway... Lord, I just want to pray, would you be with us as we look at this whole area, this whole subject of suffering with hope. Lord, I pray for your compassion to descend upon us right now. I pray, Lord God, even as I preach, for hope to awaken in desperate hearts. I ask you, help me to communicate well and to communicate effectively. I ask for that in your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Paul had always planned to visit the church in Rome. It had always been part of his, his plans, probably only a stopping over point because he wanted to go on to Spain um, and preach the gospel there. 
But the book of Acts shows us it didn't work out quite as Paul hoped that it would. Probably he'd have liked it to have happened in a different way. But what we see is that God was in it all the same. Even when our plans don't quite go as we hope they will, God still has this incredible sovereign knack of intervening and um, overcoming and doing things that we never thought were possible for him. Now what I want to do is I want to spend five minutes explaining the journey Paul took from Jerusalem to Rome so we have a bit of an understanding of that. I then just want to highlight very briefly, only for two minutes, some of the suffering that Paul would have experienced on that journey and then lastly with a chunk of the time I want to give most of our time just to looking at four questions that if we get the right answers to them will help us in the midst of suffering. So if I have given you one of my little signs, can you please stand up and come to the front? And if I can find the Apostle Paul, please, if you can come to the front as well. You need to go and get your bodyboard over there. Brilliant. So Rome, David, if you can head a bit further over that way. Sue, are you Jerusalem? I need you to go over to the far corner over there. And the Apostle Paul, can you come up here? That's brilliant. So the story starts in Ephesus. The Apostle Paul is in Ephesus and uh, while he is there he knows that he is going to be heading back um, to Jerusalem. He knows that's where God is telling him to go. He's, He's constrained by the spirit that he needs to be there. So while in Ephesus he gets in his ship and he heads off firstly to Caesarea. So off he goes. I couldn't come up with a boat so I thought a bodyboard would do, okay? So we've, we've, he's got his bodyboard and he's gone by, by bodyboard to Caesarea. While he's in Caesarea, there are some prophetic words that come that say that if he goes to Jerusalem, he is going to be chained up and he is going to be put in prison. But he knows it's still God's will, in spite of that suffering, that he still needs to go to Jerusalem. So he goes from Caesarea, he doesn't need his bodyboard, this is by land. He goes up to Jerusalem. Now, when he gets to Jerusalem, he meets with the apostles and the elders of the church and um, uh, they have a good time. He tells the journey that he's had. He tells all the fruitful stuff that has been going on. But while he's at the temple in Jerusalem, some Jews from Asia recognize him. Now, they probably saw him in Ephesus or somewhere like that. They meet him and they make false claims about what Paul is doing. They drag him out of the temple and they are beating him up with the intention of killing the Apostle Paul. Now the only thing that saved the Apostle Paul's life was a whole load of Roman soldiers that go and rescue him and they take him back to the barracks. And it says in Acts 21 verse 34 that when they came to the steps of the barracks, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. I mean this this wasn't just a little pop on the nose there was a mob looking to kill Paul but he gets dragged into the barracks the centurion thinks right I've got to get to the bottom of this so he gets the council the Jewish council together Paul goes to meet with them and again it just turns into violence it's a bit of a mob activity so Paul is still in Jerusalem at this point he's taken to the barracks but the centurion thinks well what am I going to do with this right old mess I've got going on I know what I'm going to do I'm going to send the apostle Paul to Felix who is in Caesarea so he travels to Caesarea he waits for five days for the Jews from the council to arrive in Caesarea 
And when they arrive, there's Felix sat on his throne. The Jews turned up. The Apostle Paul makes his case. The Jews disagree. But Paul does pretty well. Felix is there with his wife. And I reckon at the end of that first speech, I reckon the Apostle Paul thought, you know, I reckon I've nailed this one. This is good. But Felix doesn't, doesn't release him. Paul actually remains in prison for the next two years in Caesarea. Two years just waiting, not knowing. And what gets even worse is that although Felix um, often calls for the Apostle Paul to have a conversation with him, he doesn't release him. And after two years, Felix gets replaced. He gets replaced by a Roman governor called Festus. So Festus comes and he goes to Jerusalem and the Jews are still trying to kill the Apostle Paul. They still don't like him. So when it, by the time he gets to Caesarea, Festus that is, he's got a Jewish contingent with him who are bringing more false allegations and false claims about the Apostle Paul. Festus wants to send him back to Jerusalem. He thinks, well, look, I think this is mainly a Jewish problem. I want to send him back. But the Apostle Paul thinks, no, no. I'm not going back to Jerusalem. I'm going to appeal to Caesar. So he appeals to Caesar. Now, before he can be sent off to Rome, a king turns up. And this is the grandson of King Herod the Great. So anyone recognize the name King Herod? So he was around at the birth of Jesus. Well, this is his grandson. He rolls up with his sister Bernice. Odd relationship. Shouldn't look into it. Not very good at all. But, but Agrippa wants to hear about the Apostle Paul. And it's absolutely... So what happens is Agrippa and Bernice are sat on their thrones. All the leading men of the city are there. And they bring in the Apostle Paul in his chains. And they ask him, so why are you here? And the Apostle Paul gives this incredible testimony gospel story about God's grace and what God is doing to all of these leading people from across the city. And this is what Agrippa says to Paul. He says, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. So the Apostle Paul has this incredible opportunity to share with Agrippa, with Festus, um, with Felix, with this whole entourage of Roman authorities and things like that. Anyway, after this, who am I up to? I've done Agrippa. Festus sends Paul off to Rome. He sends him off to Caesar. Now, how are you, come on, the Apostle Paul, how are you going to get across the water without a bodyboard? Very, very good. So stop somewhere in the Mediterranean. The journey doesn't go very well. In actual fact, they've left it a bit late in sailing season. Bodyboarding is not good in the Mediterranean this time of year. So progress is really, really slow. And they get to this point on Crete where the Apostle Paul is saying, I think we should winter here. We should not go on. But the captain and the centurion think, no, we're going to push on. We're going to get to Rome in time. And so they do. They get a bit of a nice gentle breeze behind them. So they think, good, the bodyboard will make some good progress. I don't quite understand how, obviously, the Apostle Paul, the centurion, the other Roman soldiers, all of the sailors, I think there's about 200 people on this bodyboard. I don't know how they all fit it on. 
But they were all there. Anyway, going across the Mediterranean, but then a violent storm erupted. And since it says this, Luke says this, since we were violently storm-tossed, we began the next day to jettison cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of us being saved was at last abandoned. Then after 14 nights of being driven by the storm, be driven, whatever that looks like, good, well done, they suspected they were nearing land and they were shipwrecked on Malta. They stayed on Malta for three months um, while they recovered. Then he got on his bodyboard again and he headed for... No, it didn't make it as far as Hastings. The storm wasn't that bad. <laughs> when he came to Rome, he was welcomed by the church, but still under arrest. And he was chained to a Roman soldier. Paul lives in Rome for a further two years, chained to a Roman soldier. I don't know if you've thought about this. You know, when the Apostle Paul wanted a we. You know, when he showered, he's chained permanently to a Roman soldier for the next two years. So this is a summary um, of his journey, an incredible story of suffering, amazing mission opportunities and God's purposes being fulfilled. Thank you so much for your help. You can return to your seats. It's brilliant. So hopefully that gives you seven or eight chapters worth of the Apostle Paul getting from Jerusalem to Rome. And it was a bit of a journey, um, to say the least. Let me quickly highlight to you some of the suffering that Paul went through in these four different places. So in Jerusalem, Paul faced false accusation, physical violence, near death on a number of occasions. In Caesarea, he faced more false accusation, um, Plots to kill Paul. I didn't even mention those. Hope deferred. And I think sometimes hope deferred is one of the hardest things to handle. More delay. Two years waiting, not knowing if he would ever get released. The voyage. More physical danger. Massive trauma. I mean, I get seasick on the cross-channel ferry which lasts for an hour, and they don't even sail when it's bat. Can you imagine what it was like after three days, and the Apostle Paul says, all hope of salvation was lost, and then they still stayed on the boat for another 11, 11 days. I mean, that is... Oh, and then a shipwreck. I didn't mention that he got bitten by a snake when he landed on Malta. I mean, he must think, oh, come on, God. You know, he gets bitten by a snake. They all think he's going to die because he's a murderer. This is the people on, on Malta. When he, it's so funny, when he lives, they decide he's a god. So, so, so within a couple of hours, he's a criminal who deserves death right up to a god. Anyway, we won't even go into that. So that's the voyage. Then in Rome, more delay. Another two years in Rome where we don't quite know what happens to him. Loneliness, more hope deferred, abandonment. If you read the book of Philippians, it's really interesting because he writes it from Rome and he says that there are even people in the church at Rome who are preaching the gospel in order to get him in more trouble while he's in prison. I mean, that's rough, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? That's Christians doing that. But, but all of that 
is on top. Paul faced suffering in various ways over a four or five year period in ways that I think would give most of us a run for our money. I mean, that's the truth of it. So how did Paul handle this suffering? What, what can we learn from this story that can help us? Because the reality is the problem with suffering is that it hurts. Doesn't it? It's hard. So what can we learn? Well, I want to, I want to look at it by answering four questions. Um, don't worry about the numbering on the PowerPoint because on Friday afternoon it was five. It's now four. Um, the first question is why? The why question. Why is there suffering? Now, in, in a general sense, I can answer that. You may be asking the question, why am I suffering? I may not be able to answer that specifically, but I can answer why there is suffering. I can say that suffering and pain aren't part of God's original plan. In, in creation, there was no pain or suffering. I can also say that suffering is temporary. That when we get to heaven or Christ returns, whichever happens sooner, there will not be any pain or suffering. It will be destroyed. It wasn't there at the beginning. It will not be there at the end. But suffering is a result of the fall. It's a result of when the world got broken, when Adam and Eve chose to live for themselves rather than to live for God. And what entered at that point was sin. And a lot of suffering is just to do with sin. Selfishness, a lust for power, greed, sexual sin. Satan was given authority over this world. So he is a powerful foe, if not a defeated foe. So some suffering comes because of that. Sickness entered at the fall as well. We are living in a decaying world. And although some of you are in denial, you have decaying bodies as well. And then there's natural disasters and world events. Suffering can come because of an any result, a result of any of those individually or a mixture of them. Specifically, the why question may remain unanswered. Why me? Why now? But there are things about God that we know and they are unchanging. We know that in spite of suffering we face that he is sovereign and he is in control. We know that he has all wisdom and even if it doesn't make sense to us, we know that he is wise. We know that he is kind and we know that he is compassionate. And it's important in our suffering and in the mystery of it that we don't forget what we can know for certain because of the mystery. But it's also interesting to note in Paul's particular account that Paul expected pain and suffering to be part of his journey as a Christian. He says in Acts 20, verse 22 and 23, And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me 
that in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await, await me. I mean, they're challenging words, aren't they? So Paul knew that as he went from city to city preaching the gospel, what would go with it was suffering and affliction. He wasn't surprised when he faced it. And if I can say, we shouldn't be surprised either. I know it feels wrong, but we shouldn't be surprised when we face difficulty, when we face suffering. I often find that God uses circumstances more than anything else to shape me. That he can speak to me prophetically through words, he can speak to me through Bible readings, all sorts of different things through preachers. But often God does his deepest work in me through circumstance as I'm pushed back onto him. So the why question. The next thing I want to mention for Paul is the identity question. Paul knew who he was even in the midst of suffering. This is what he goes on to say after those words I just read out in Acts 20 verse 24. I do not account my life as any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I think that Bible verse is there somewhere else. Might be under number three. Now, a different Bible verse. Oh, that's it, yeah. What challenging words. This is so provoking, but it points to Paul knowing who he is and what has happened to him. He says it in Galatians. This is what he says, Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself up for me. You see, the Apostle Paul knew that when he became a Christian, he didn't just get a saviour, but he got a Lord as well. That his life was no longer his. His old life had died with Christ and he'd now been raised to a new life, a life of usefulness and fruitfulness joined to Jesus Christ. I've been crucified with Jesus. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith. I've got my eyes fixed on the Son of God who gave himself for me. It leads to a life of radical usefulness to Jesus. Kingdom first and me second. You see, suffering hadn't become his identity because Jesus was. Now, I know these things are so easy to say and so difficult to apply, but, but for the Apostle Paul in the shipwrecks, in the beatings, in the disappointment, in the waiting, he did not allow that to become the defining factor of his life, but it's the fact that I'm living for Jesus and his glory and he is Lord of my life. That is what it is that defines who I am and how I live. 
Let me read out an, an amazing quote by a lady called Fanny Crosby, an American hymn writer from the 19th century. Now, I mean, this has provoked me in preparation. She was blinded as a baby through a mistake made in her medical care. As a child, she decided to store a little jewel in her heart. It was called contentment. She wrote songs and hymns from the age of eight. She went on to write over 8,000. She was asked, Fanny, do you wish that you had not been blinded? She replied, well, the good thing about being blind is that the very first face I'll see will be the face of Jesus. What, provoke, what a provoking testimony. It's not denying the pain. It's not dis- denying the suffering. But it's not being defined by Eva because God had plans for her life. She had died. Her life was now hidden with Christ in God. The Apostle Paul would suffer loads over a five-year period, but it didn't allow him. But he didn't allow it to define who he was. It didn't affect his identity founded on Jesus Christ. He wouldn't have spoken to Felix, Festus, or Agrippa if he hadn't had his chains. He probably would never have spoken, well, we don't quite know, but his appeal to Caesar. We know that the the whole palace guard knew about Paul and his chains in Rome. None of that would have happened if he hadn't been chained for five years. And I notice that every step of the journey, Paul is prepared to share his testimony and look to introduce people to Jesus. Even on Malta, after 14 days of storm-drivenness, followed by a shipwreck, he is praying for the sick and seeing them healed. God's gentle, God's compassionate call to us is my children look to glorify me with all of your lives. Allow me to turn the worst of circumstances into something that displays my manifold wisdom, my mercy and my grace. A why question, an identity question, third thing, a comfort question. God cares. I want to say that to, to, to particularly for some of you. God cares about what you're going through, what you're feeling. Sometimes with Paul, he finds deliverance, like with a storm. I'm not certain I'm keen on his deliverance. Shipwreck isn't, doesn't sound a good way of the storm finishing, but he was delivered there. But with the prison, being a prisoner, chains, at the end of Acts, we don't know whether Paul was released. He may have been released. He may have gone to Spain. He may have never been released and been executed on the end of it. But God always turns up in our circumstances if you invite him to. He always turns up in your circumstances if you invite him to. He's delivered from the storm but remains in prison. And Paul was used to 
hardship and suffering. It says in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8 to 10. Just allow these words to uh, settle. Is that there, Alf? I can't remember if those words are there. They're not. You have to listen carefully. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. We don't know what this is. But God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weakness, insult, hardship, persecution and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul managed to position himself in this place. That in the good and the bad, he knew contentment in God and knew what it was to draw down the grace of God. Of course, we should look to relieve suffering where it's possible and where it's righteous to do so. That's both for ourselves, but also other people. When we see others suffering, if we can do something to relieve it, that's right for us to intervene, to do it. But while we wait, and I think waiting can be the hardest thing, God comes alongside and gives us grace to stand. He brings direct assistance. It says in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3 and 4, Apostle Paul talking again, Blessed be, I think these words are definitely there, Alf. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. He's the God of all comfort. He's the one we worship, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We have a father who loves to comfort us. We have a church where we can draw comfort from one another. And that's really important as well. And then lastly, we've looked at the why question. We've looked at an identity question. We've looked at a comfort question. And lastly, I want to look at the hope question. Ultimately, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. We know that, don't we? We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Can I ask the band to come up just as I'm doing this last point? But there is a danger that we jump to the wrong conclusion with a verse like this. We could jump to the conclusion of thinking, well, this must mean that God will reverse the bad situation that I'm in. If God works all things together for good, it's, ne- it's nearly like a temptation. Well, let me repaint what good is. And I'm sure God will bring that about. But that isn't what this verse is saying. It has much more eternal significance than that. It says... In Romans 8, verse um, 30 to 31, just two verses on. And those whom he has predestined, he also called. 
And those whom he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You see, the promise from Scripture isn't that we will not suffer. The promise in Scripture is not even that God will deliver us from it when we do in a temporary way. But the promise of Scripture is he will deliver us from it in an eternal way. And what he is saying, the Apostle Paul is here, he's saying, is if you have been saved, if God pre-chose you before the foundation of the world, if God called you and there was an effectual call that brought life to your body, if at that moment you were justified, you were declared not guilty, just as if I never sinned, if all that has already happened to you, how much more confident can I be? That God will work all things together for my good, resulting in my ultimate glorification with him. There will be a day. There will be a day when I will not suffer anymore. No more sickness, no more emotional pain, no more traumatic event in the past. That is so painful to me. That pain wiped away because I will be with Jesus and I will see him face to face. And all of that will have been rectified. But while, while I wait for that to happen, I have the God of all comfort who who walks with me day by day by day, pouring out his love and his grace and his compassion. I have a church that I've been placed within where my friends and my family can come alongside. And although they can't heal all of the hurts, I can know that I am loved in community and I can feel something of the love of God expressed through those who God has put around me. I have a hope because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. And the Apostle Paul finishes it by saying this, Know in all these things we are more than conquerors. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the hope. That is the hope I have in Christ. That is the security we walk with. I think that is the hope that carried Paul on the eighth night of the storm, when all hope was lost, he knew although physically he wasn't certain that he would be saved, he knew he was eternally safe in the arms of his father. When he was being beaten and didn't know as he went from city to city what would face him, he knew he had a father who would never let him go. And at the end of it, he would get a crown. That would last forever. Church, this is the hope that we have. 
Sometimes we are so quick to exchange eternal promise of God for small physical material blessings. And we're so quick to take our eyes off Jesus and wonder, well, God, you've not sorted this thing out. And and, and I know genuine pain and hope that you carry. But we have one who loves us, who will make all things new. That hymn writer, I can't see, but the first face I will see is my Jesus. What a hope. I can't dance, I can't stand, but when I can in glory, it's going to be for him. He hasn't changed my work situation, and I'm struggling, and I'm pushing through, and I cry every morning before I go to work, but I know there will be a day when I'm working for him with no more pain and no more suffering Because that is the hope contained in the gospel. Church, he cares and he will relieve our present sufferings. But even if you stagger to the finish line, you know you have an eternal crown. An eternal crown that can never, ever be taken from you. This is the hope we have. This is the hope we have contained in the gospel. Why don't we stand? I don't know what song we're going to sing, but I really hope it's one where we can lift our eyes and lift our gaze to him and give him our best. And if you are suffering and struggling at the moment, make that decision this morning to take your eyes away from the suffering. I will not take my identity through that pain. I'm going to position myself back in who I am positioned in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to glorify him.